Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 32 in the book of Hebrews titled Faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we get another look at Abraham this week, and then we also talk about his son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob. What do we get here in these five verses about the life of faith seen through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, again, we want to keep in mind the author to Hebrews is writing to Jewish people who had made a profession of faith in Christ. And the central exhortation here is to not be of those that shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So we're, we're going to be those that, uh, that are justified by faith and those who, who walk by faith are saved uh, fundamentally. And so he uh, wants to show them the life of faith. And, and so he's pulling uh, from, from the most famous stories in, in, and the most uh, key individuals, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, showing that they live by faith. And he's, he's zeroing in on some key issues, especially Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac, one of the pinnacle moments in all of Old Testament history to say it was only by faith that he did it. And so he's calling on these Jewish professors of faith in Christ, people who made a profession of faith in Christ, to be like Abraham, to, as it says in Romans 4, walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had when he offered his son Isaac, to be like that. And I think we're also going to see with these stories, there's a, uh, the, the issue of death, that we're looking at the death, uh, almost death, of the son Isaac. And, then, and then, uh, then you've got Isaac on his deathbed, so he thought anyway. And then Jacob definitely on his deathbed. And, so, and the same thing with uh, later Joseph on his deathbed. You're going to see all of these deathbed experiences. So the, the greatest single test of our lives is what will we do when we face death? And uh, whether it could be death uh, at the hands of a persecutor. What if you're arrested and, and charged with being a Christian and you face your own death? Or even death by old age. So that's what we're looking at today. Hmm. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 17 through 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So my first question to you, Andy, from this text is, why did God test Abraham? Because the text says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Why did God present this test to him? Well, I think it's vital for us to realize that he did. And that uh, just because God brings severe tests into our lives doesn't mean he doesn't love us. Abraham was called God's friend. He was God's chosen instrument, uh, the, the ultimate example of a man of faith someone who is, who is cherished by God, and still he tested him. And how much more his own son, the only begotten son of God, Jesus, who he loved with a perfect love and said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. He crushed him and caused him to suffer on the cross. And so just because you're going through a severe test, a severe affliction, doesn't mean God doesn't love you 
or that God isn't, isn't favorably connected with you or, or delight in you. Also, we know from the book of James, he says that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. And so I think we just need to see simply that the text says, and, and it's clearly written in the Old Testament, that Abraham tested, or God tested Abraham. And so it is with us. We should expect our faith to be tested. Also, the testing of our faith proves its genuineness, that when we go through adverse circumstances, we can see that our faith is a genuine thing. So he did test him. So let's talk about that genuineness, because if I remember the count correctly, when Abraham does offer up Isaac, and then the angel of the mm -hmm. Lord stops him. Yeah. And then God says, now I know. Mm. Obviously, God doesn't learn anything, but what did Abraham learn through God bringing this out of him? Well, I was thinking about this this very morning as I'm, I continue to work on my book on heaven and thinking about that, that all of the days ordained for everyone's life were written in God's book before one of them came to be. There, God doesn't ever learn anything. Uh, the unfolding of history doesn't teach him anything. Everything goes out exactly as it was written in the mind of God before anything came to be. And yet, he still wants to see certain things done in space and time because that's who we are. We have an alpha day and an omega day. We have a first day on earth and a last day on earth. And certain things have to actually be done in space and time. So this is a clear example. Genesis 22, now I know that you fear God now that you've done this. And so the fact is we had to live it out. And once it's been lived out in space and time, in history, then it becomes a matter of the historical record of which in Revelation 20, the court is seated and the books are open and things are, uh, people are, are judged by what they had done as recorded in the books. And also the book of James, chapter 2, Abraham was justified by works in the sense that James uh, means it and it does say that. He was vindicated and proved to be a genuine follower of Christ by what he did, by his works. So that's uh, a very important statement by, and, and frankly, James mentions this very issue of by faith Abraham offered his son Isaac and he was vindicated by his obedience. So that's what we have to see, that our faith is proved in space and time by our obedience. Hmm. So what kind of faith is the faith that produces this really radical obedience? You know, mm. the text says, uh, God says, Abraham, take your son. And he says, your only son. I'm going to ask you a question about mm. that in a minute. But he says, take your son, your only son, and then, you know, offer him on, yeah. on this mountain. Yeah. So what kind of faith leads to that radical obedience? Mm -hmm. Well, I would put the word in there, a mature faith. This was like a graduate level or PhD level test. Uh, he didn't do this uh, right away. You know, he built him up over years, step by step. And you look at, at the history of being called out of Ur of the Chaldees and being called over to the Promised Land, a land he'd never seen, and all of the tests that happened, all the many years of waiting for Isaac to be born and waiting on God, the patience that he developed, the relationship that he developed. So he was able to hear the voice of God when God said to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the place I'll show you and offer him up as a sacrifice. So he recognized the voice of God, knew it was God telling him to do it, not some demon. Uh, and so he was developing uh, faith. So I would say, to answer your question, it's a mature faith that can do something like this. And so for me, what it says is that God builds our faith step by step. 
in little acts of obedience along the way so that we get stronger and stronger in our ability to hear God's voice and to see God's activity in the world and to see the truth of Scripture and act accordingly. What do you make out of this phrase, your only son? Because it's, it's said multiple times in Scripture, you know, when God said, take your son, your only son. But when we read the Genesis account, we obviously know that he had a son, Ishmael, before that. Yeah. But the text highlights that Isaac is his only son. So what do you get out of that? Yeah, it says it right here in verse 17. Uh, he had received the promise, his only son, that he would uh, offer up his only son. And I think we must hear, of course, um, a, a glimmer of, of, um, of what's said of Jesus, that Jesus is God's only begotten son. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so there's a clear parallel between Abraham and Isaac and, and God and Jesus. And so in this, Isaac is a type of Jesus and uh, Abraham a type or a, a prophetic acting out of God the Father. And so you, you have that sense of offering up his only son. I think also there's a sense in which, though it did happen in space and time, that Ishmael should never have been born, that Abraham shouldn't have done what he did with Hagar. It was wrong for him, morally wrong, because after he did it, in the very next chapter, uh, it says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So there's a, almost an implicit rebuke of what Abraham did with, um, with Ishmael, with, with Hagar. So I think he's the only legitimate son. He's the son that he should have waited for um, better than he did to some degree. It's hard to find fault with an incredible man like Abraham, but he should have waited longer, should have waited to the end uh, of just his own wife and not had relations with another woman. And so there is a sense of that he's the only legitimate son here. Yeah, and Isaac was deeply loved. It says, your son whom you love, he deeply loved Isaac. Yeah, strong affection there. And, and, and that greatly intensifies the test of faith. Uh, to take his, that which was closest to his heart, which you could could say, you know, you worry at that point, he's a created thing, that it's an idol. You know, it's something that he loved too much. And, and really the test was, do you love me more than you love your son? That's what God was saying to Abraham. He's, he's testing him to say, do you love me more than, than anything else in this world? Now, there is also more hanging on Isaac than just Abraham's love. There was the promise, yeah. right? He had promised him land and descendants and blessing, and he's about to kill his only son. Yeah. And it says uh, in the text here, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he yeah. reiterates this promise. Clearly. So what does that tell you? And verse 19 gives us some clues of what Abraham's perspective mm -hmm. on God's promise was at this point. Yeah, I mean, it seems to make no sense at all. But actually, it was the key to everything. It was the key to his obedience. And you're going to see in the text how he said he reasoned or considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. So the only way that God could be consistent here and not have changed his mind or be capricious or demonic, really an evil God, if he is still the pure, perfect God who knows the end from the beginning, the only way this is going to make sense is if he raises Isaac from the dead. And so fundamentally, our faith has to do with resurrection from the dead. It has to do with life everlasting through faith in Christ. And so to some degree, Isaac is that type of Christ, but he's also a picture of ourselves, that we ourselves, having been saved from death by the substitute in the story, it's a ram in the, 
in the horns, God or caught by its horns, God will provide a substitute. That Christ, really, there are two types of Christ here, and and the other is the ram who's uh, who was caught in the thicket, and that is a picture of Christ. So through the substitute, the son uh, is saved from death, uh, eternal death, hell, and is raised to life. And he does say, figuratively speaking, he received him back from death. So here's the thing. Uh, the NIV 84 that I memorized years ago um, puts wrongly uh, a concessive phrase in here that it says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, uh, even though he had, God had promised that he would. It's like, it's not even though. It's because he had made the promise he was able to do it. It's like, well, this makes no sense. So that was, uh, I think, a wrong concessive phrase, even though he had made promises about Isaac. No, specifically because of the promise, he was able to obey. I love that. So he then he reasons out based yeah. on the promise of God. Well, if God said he was going to give me offspring, he must do something here. The only way. And, and we get indications right in the Genesis account where he says to the servant who leaves there at the base of the mountain, stay here and I and the boy will go up and worship and we will return to you. So he already knew that the final outcome, and just like Jesus said about Lazarus, this sickness will not end in death. The final word here is not going to be the death of Isaac, but he may have to pass through death and on into resurrection for us to, to come back and, and reconnect with you and go back home. Wow, that's powerful. I never caught that first person plural. I never noticed that we will return. Oh, yeah. He, he already knew that God was going to raise him from the dead, so he goes up the mountain to kill his son. Wow. And you think about that, it's just staggering what God asked of him. And here's the thing, you, you really have to focus on Christ. For us as Christians, just say, look, here is Jesus, who, whose very clothing was taken from him and gambled away in fulfillment of prophecy. There was nothing physically left that Jesus did not give. He gave his only, he gave his blood, he gave his body, he gave his life, he gave his clothing, he gave everything for us. So he gave everything for us and then turns around and demands everything from us. There's nothing that we own. There's nothing that's precious to us that he does not have the right to demand. And this story, I think, really underscores that. You can't say, no, no, you can't do that. You can't take my son from me. You can't take my daughter from me, my wife, whom I love. You can't take my health from me. No, he can take whatever he wants, whatever he would find necessary or helpful for the spread of the gospel, for his purpose in the world, fair game. He can take anything from you because he gave it all to you and it belongs to him anyway. And he has already given you your soul, your forgiveness of sins, eternal life. So anything physical in this life is fair game. You don't really need it. It's not a permanent kind of part of your soul. It's uh, whatever God wants to do with it, he can do and not be unloving. So this, is the, this story teaches that as well. Now, what about Isaac? In verse 20, he says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Hmm. And when you just read through Hebrews 11, it just kind of makes sense and you just move on. But when you th stop and think about the account in Genesis and the whole, you know, two nations warring in Rebecca's womb. And then she tells Jacob, your father's about to bless Esau. And then so they trick him. How is this a faith-filled act? Can you give us some insight into what the author is pointing out here in Isaac's life? Yeah, it's pretty sketchy. Actually, you read the story, it's one of the most sordid tales in the whole story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, and you, you covered it briefly, but there's just, just so many question marks here. And you read this and it's like, this is not one of the shining moments at all. 
And the author just seems to gloss over it. The author of Hebrews just glosses, by faith, Isaac, you know, blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future and all that. And, you know, you look at that and, and, and it's just like, huh, I'm not seeing it, O author to Hebrews. I don't really get why you're picking. You just had to have a link between Abraham and Jacob, so we've got to say something about Isaac. And then you read the story, and it's pretty sordid. You know, you've got, you've got Esau, who is just the quintessential man of the earth. Uh, he's, a, he's a carnal man, and he's spoken of uh, as somebody who, who traded in his, his uh, birthright for a bowl of stew. And uh, he's just the quintessential unbeliever, really, a uh, man of this world in a very bad way. And not only that, surrounded by believing people. So he's the, he's the picture of the unbelieving child of godly parents. You know, I've said before, and I've warned my own kids this, there is no worse place on earth to go to hell from than from a believing, solid Christian family because we are held accountable for what we've learned. And so judgment is in proportion to knowledge. The more you know, the more you're held accountable for. And so it's a warning. Please don't go to hell from my family. You know, you, you're really, you're surrounded by all this truth, the truth of the Word of God. And so here's Esau, the quintessential example of that. And uh, he's held up many places in Scripture as the example of the unbelieving godless man who all he cares about is a bowl of stew and a good hunt and physical blessings, carnal blessings, things that are sensory, the five-sense world. He doesn't care at all about his birthright. What's that to me? I'm about to die. No, you're not. I mean, I'm sure he had plenty of fat built up in his body that he could have survived at least one more day. But instead, he's just feeling hungry and he wants to trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. And, uh, but the problem here is not so much Esau. The problem is Isaac. Why couldn't he see the true nature of his son? He favored Esau over Jacob. And from the beginning, when the twins were born, Rebecca had been told very clearly the older will serve the younger. That was God's intention. And no doubt, no doubt, Rebecca told Isaac this, but he didn't believe it. And even though he saw the nature of his son, I think he shared some of that nature. I think he was not a fully developed, mature believer like Abraham. You know, I think they were at different levels spiritually. Abraham and Isaac, uh, when Isaac was older, he did not have the level of perception. And he, it's actually literally symbolized by his physical blindness. So you remember the story. He's laying in bed and he thinks he's about to die, which he's not because he lived for many years after that, but he thinks he is. And so it's time to give the patriarchal blessing on his son. And there's no doubt who he's going to choose. No doubt. He's going to choose Esau. And he's going to put his hands on Esau and bless him with a patriarchal blessing, a prophetic blessing. And so Rebecca, knowing that this is happening, moves out with the son Jacob and says, we got to manipulate, we got to do something. So while Esau's out hunting game, which Isaac wants to eat, he wants to eat a bowl of venison or something like that and then give blessing to his hunter son, okay? Meanwhile, Rebecca's going to move out and she's going to finagle and she's not been able through honest persuasion to get Isaac to change his mind. He's blind, spiritually blind, even physically blind, but to some degree spiritually blind. He doesn't see what God's doing. And it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But he doesn't see it. And so he is ready to put his hands on his firstborn son and bless him with the patriarchal blessing, prophetic blessing, and get it wrong. So through scheming and manipulation and frankly lying, Jacob has to swindle his father, his blind father, 
and get the patriarchal blessing, which he does. And you're like, okay, I get all this story. It's a bad story, but he gives the, uh, the blessing on him. He blesses him with, the, with richness of the earth and richness of the womb, and, and he will be served by his brothers and uh, all of this, and, and there it is, patriarchal blessing. But he's intending to give it to Esau. <laughs> his whole time he's giving it to Esau. Intent matters. Yeah, yeah, intent matters. Um, and and uh, then in comes Esau. And, uh, and he comes clearly with all the trappings of his firstborn son Esau. But, you know, Isaac's already had a full belly of stew that, that Rebekah had made that, you know, Jacob had gotten from a kid in the in the flock there and and the whole thing's done and in comes esau you know day late and a dollar short and he cannot get the blessing and he cannot bring about a change of mind um and so here's the key how is how does isaac display faith faith is the eyesight of the soul how does he see clearly up to the very point frankly when esau comes in with the bowl of stew he's not been seeing clearly He's had one perspective. But here's the key. When he finally realizes what has happened providentially, he doesn't fight it. He doesn't retract the blessing he'd given on his son, uh, Jacob. He goes with it. He says, he will be blessed. I'm not retracting it. Even though he loves his true firstborn son, Esau, he will not retract it. And then he, Esau, cries and weeps and mourns. Bless me. Me too, my father. He said, what can I give you? And he says, all right, here's your blessing. You'll be away from all of these blessings. You'll be on the outside. Now, in the end, you'll throw off your brother's yoke, so you'll gain some kind of measure of political freedom, the descendants, the Edomites, and all that. But Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. He becomes the quintessential reprobate. And Isaac saw and did not fight it. He didn't oppose. He didn't undo the patriarchal blessing but he believed in it and upheld it. So you get just one mention here. And let's be honest. There's a lot said about Abraham's faith. And there's a lot said about uh, Jacob's pilgrimage. There's very little said about Isaac. He's not one of the superstars. And so even in this chapter, there's just one line about him in yeah. terms of his faith. There is one other way he displayed faith also is um, after, after that event, uh, he blesses Jacob again and sends him back to Padanaram to get the to get the wife. Yeah, so he's, he's on board by then yeah. with Jacob being the man, and so I think from then on, I think he saw clearly. But it's just sad that his love for, frankly, his love for Stu and and the things that Esau loved blinded him to some degree, and he did not see what God was doing in Jacob's life and in Esau's life. As well. Yeah, uh, because we're going to talk about Jacob next, I want to ask you an application follow-up question on Isaac. Uh, I, I see that as a huge danger for all of us uh, to let the things of the world cloud out our faith and our spiritual eyesight. How can we guard against being like Isaac before the blessing? And we, how can we guard against letting worldly things cloud out our faith? Well, you said it yourself. You know, what, what is it that you have a taste for that's worldly? Not, not immoral, that's a different matter, but it's just worldly. And you're just addicted to it. You just love it. And you just live for it. And you can't live without it. That's going to cloud your, your spiritual eyesight. It's going to dim your faith. Or in the parable of the seed and the soils, it's like weeds growing up that choke the plant. And so um, I, I just weed the garden. Just, you know, deny yourself things. Fast from things. Don't, you don't have to live the life of an ascetic. But I would, I would say take your top ten things that are physical that you like the best and just cyclically fast from all of them from time to time. Just... 
Just when am I going to fast from number one? When am I going to fast from number two? And on down. And just deny yourself those things regularly. And then do them again. Again, I'm speaking about amoral pleasures right. that God gives you. Um, so don't be an ascetic, but just keep fasting from them uh, in a cyclical or on and off pattern. Just go after them. If sports is becoming that, then just don't watch for a little yeah. while. If like exercise is becoming that. Your teams in the World Series don't watch one of the games or don't watch any of the games. You know, you won't die. You read about the games after they're over. Just, just like go after it with a knife, you know, and say, I'm just not going to let anything that I like in this world be a god to me. But I'm not called to asceticism either. I'm going to enjoy the things of this life, but in moderation and carefully. So I think it's what Paul meant when he said, I beat my body and make it my slave. You know, I just am going to live a life of self-control. Yeah. Let's go to Jacob. Verse 21 says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, you and I were talking about this before, and I think you mentioned it in the previous podcast. But the author just pretty much skips over the life of, of Jacob. He had, he had a full life. Much of the book of Genesis is devoted to the generations of Jacob and, and Jacob's life and his posterity. But all we get is this little snippet of his deathbed. Yeah. Uh, what do we get here out of the author highlighting Jacob in his deathbed. Well, yeah, I mean, so many moments of faith, you know, when he is at Bethel and he sees the, um, the stairway to heaven, the angels ascending and descending. It's a vision of Christ, really, ahead of time. But uh, Jacob was a hard character. I mean, he was a hard-hearted, conniving, he was a con artist. And if you look at how hard God dealt with him in Providence, you know, the whole thing with the switcheroo on his wedding night, I mean, what in the world? Um, the, the con man got conned. He got conned, and there's Leah. I think it's one of the most humorous moments in all the Bible. The next morning he awoke, and behold, it was Leah. you got to keep the word behold, and it's like, what? And and then there's Rachel, and Laban's like, yeah, I'll give you. I'll give her to you as well for another seven years. It's like, what in the world? And he's got to deal with that. And, and he, he says rightly to Laban, his father-in-law, he said, you know, you would have sent me away empty-handed. You would have taken everything. So he has to. And then, then Esau's coming with, what was it, 400, 400. 600, uh, 400 of his best friends to kind of greet him, welcome him home. He's like, all right, I'm going to die tomorrow. Uh, and he's got to wrestle with the angel all night long. There's a lot of key moments in his life. And then, of course, what his sons did, uh, bringing him uh, uh, Joseph's blood-soaked uh, robe. And, and he grieved for years over his dead son, who wasn't even dead. And uh, they conned him. He was just conned and conned and conned, he who was himself a swindler. But what's interesting is how the author of Hebrews skips over all of that. And then there are some faith-filled moments he could have chosen there. You know, like, I will not let you go until you bless me. That wrestling with the angel is a faithful moment. There's a lot of things he could have chosen. But no, he zeroes in on this deathbed. And why? Because I think it has to do with the prophetic words spoken um, to each of the, of the tribes. And he saw clearly who they were. And there's no doubt who his favorite was. His favorite was Joseph, and with good reason. Joseph was an incredible man. But what's interesting is the messianic blessing goes to Judah. Right. He doesn't bless Joseph with the messianic line. He saw clearly it was going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter would not depart from Judah. And Judah, his actual son, hadn't done anything really spectacularly, although he did speak up for Benjamin. Um, at the key moment. When he did offer himself he a substitution. He offered himself as a substitute. But he himself was not a stellar individual. There was a sin in his life and there was different things. But it didn't have anything to do with how worthy Judah was. It was what God intended to do through the lineage of Judah. And, and so faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see spiritual realities, past, present, and future. And so he, sp he sees the future 
like a patriarch prophet does. He sees what's coming with his sons. By the way, the, the patriarchal blessing of, of Jacob on his deathbed meant that God's test of Moses to slaughter all of the 12 tribes and make of Moses a Levite, you know, a new nation, was really just a test of Moses. There's no way he's going to do that. The lion of the tribe of Judah is going to get born. So he was just testing Moses. And Moses passed the test. But he's like, I'm not really going to slaughter Judah. Here. Yeah, I was thinking about that the <laughs> other day as I was reading the account. And, uh, and I, was, I was actually thinking of those same things. And some, my conclusion was God said that to incite Moses to be a mediator. Yeah. And, and, and the purpose is because um, is to illustrate Christ's mediatory role. Yeah, so he great. incites that's Moses great. to get on his face and beg God not to destroy him and so that we can see what a mediator does in between um, God and man. But wow, our God tests people, doesn't he? He's testing Moses right there. I'm going to slaughter everybody. I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, I no. probably would have failed that test. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what then would be become of the promises made through, through Jacob, patriarchal promise concerning Judah? The scepter would not depart from Judah. So, you know, that's what we have. He worships at the end of his life. He gives these patriarchal blessings. He does all of that by faith. But again, look what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's preparing us for the greatest test of faith we'll ever have. We are going to die not having received the promises. The promises are in the future for all of us, not in this world, but in the next. Mm-hmm. We have one more to discuss today, and that is Joseph. Mm-hmm. He says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Mm. I think this is a powerful example of faith. What do you get out of Joseph and him mentioning the exodus while he's dying in the land of Egypt as, as really the second in command? Yeah. Well, he saw how temporal were all of the blessings of this world. Um, you know, he, he, like Moses later, um, didn't think much about the trappings of power and pleasure and prestige in Egypt. You know, he was looking ahead. He was looking ahead to Christ. And we're going to see that later, even in the same chapter. You know, he didn't he considered the, the, the riches of Christ greater than all the riches of Egypt. And, and you know, honestly, Joseph was Just the same the way. Same way yeah. He was like, look, you know, this stuff, it doesn't mean that much. Um, what really matters, though, and, and it's not like he needed any new revelation. God had already told Abraham that this would happen. Back in Genesis 15, he said, you know, know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, where they'll be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Now, that had not happened in Joseph's lifetime. So in order for the people to be enslaved, then another king will have to come along who doesn't know me. (laughs) And uh, my privileged position will end, and the Jews' privileged position in Egypt will end, and they'll be enslaved. And it's going to go on for generations. And so 400 years. And so he knew that was coming. And so he spoke about the Exodus. God's going to come down here, and he's going to get you out of the trouble you're going to be in. What trouble? It's coming. It's coming. Because uh, Abraham was told that we would be enslaved. And so he knew what was coming. And he said, but when God comes and delivers you, take me out of this place. Don't bury me here. We already know Jacob had been, uh, Joseph had seen to it that Jacob would be buried in the promised land. And he's like, do the same for me. You know, he had, he had used his power and asked permission of Pharaoh. And they took uh, Jacob's dead body in a great procession. Um, back to the promised land. He was buried in that cave along with uh, his ancestors. And so he asked that he also be carried, uh, Joseph's bones be carried out of Egypt at that time. So again, what difference does it make where you're buried? It really doesn't matter. 
I mean, we need to understand that. It does not matter if you get burned up in a, in a, in a plane crash or, or you fight in some uh, distant war and you're buried in some sandy beach somewhere or you are buried in the depths of the ocean because you were a sailor during, during wartime or, or at some other time you fell by a disease. It doesn't matter. God knows how to raise up people from the dead, but it was a symbolic thing. These were patriarchs. It showed where his heart lay. His heart right? lay there. Yeah, and he said, take my bones out of here. And he made him swear. And Moses kept the promise. He brought his bones out. Yeah, I think most people, if they had a position like Joseph, would have been securing key relationships with people in Pharaoh's court, you know, key positions for their sons, right? But Joseph, he's looking, he's looking to the land that God's going to give him. What a great man Joseph was. He was such a, a strong believer. He's one of the, I think of all the people, I think there's more written about Joseph Joseph's life, the details of his life, the, the comings and goings and all that, with very little sin uh, on display, very little carnality or wickedness or unbelief. I mean, it's debatable whether he did anything wrong. Now, he was a sinner saved by grace. And you could say as a teenager, he was a little bit incautious. Yeah, maybe should have kept that dream to yeah, himself. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been a good one. But other than that, look at the tests that God put him through and how he came through it. I mean, Daniel's close, but there's more written about the life of Joseph than the life of Daniel. Yeah. Well, just in summary for all these guys, what applications can we take away from their lives and how to live the life of faith now based on their experience and their lives? Yeah, I think we should pray, oh, you know, oh God, increase our faith. Just like people asked of Jesus, increase my faith. Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. Just say, look, I want to be like Abraham. I want to have a life of faith like Abraham. I want to be a hero of faith. And, and I want to be able to see better than Isaac did. I want to be able to see what God's doing and not let my carnal taste cloud my, my sight. I want my, my true sight to be a, a sight of faith. I want to be a man of faith like Jacob who can see in the future and see what God's doing. Same thing with Joseph. I want to be like that. So, oh Lord, develop a supernatural vision in me. Uh, which is the eyesight of the soul, faith. Amen. Well, that was episode 32 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 33, where we discuss Moses, Joshua, and Rahab from Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 31. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.